To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation, your poverty, though you are rich, the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, grant that we would understand your word more fully and faithfully, live it more obediently before you, and love you with all of our cherished hearts, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated, and if you would grab your Bibles, go to Revelation chapter 2, book of Revelation chapter 2. If love is the first mark of the Christian church, uh, as Jesus made very clear in his letter to the Ephesians that we looked at last week or that is immediately before the verses that I just read, if you weren't here, if love indeed is the mark, uh, the first mark of a Christian church, then suffering is the second. If Christ holds forward love, love of God and love of others, as the primary mark of the Christian church. It's instructive that suffering is the second mark that he puts forward. A couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe a little longer than that at this point, I was uh, watching a rerun of an old sitcom, and the basis of the sitcom, at least this particular episode, was a 10-year-old boy who really wanted to play tackle football. He really wanted to go out for the team. He was trying out for tackle football, and the family kind of gathered around him, and they were interested in, you know, why do you, want, why do you enjoy tackle football? Why do you like, like football? And he says, well, I really like the helmets, and I really like the jerseys, and I like the practices, and I like the team. I like every part of football. He says, except the part that involves tackling. I guess I don't really like that. And, of course, the whole rest of the half an hour sitcom was built out of the humor that here is this kid that wants to play tackle football and yet, you know, can't or doesn't want to be involved in any tackling. The whole idea of tackle football, of course, entails the idea or has in mind the idea of tackling, and you can't play tackle football without the idea of tackling involved. And so they went ahead and made great fun of that for the next half an hour. I suspect that we could make great fun of a lot of Christians, myself as well, when it comes to the idea that there are a whole lot of things about the Christian faith that we really like. We are enamored, and appropriately so, with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the salvation that he offers us, for the gift of good, of grace that is ours in Jesus Christ, for the redemption that is ours upon the cross. We love all of those kind of things, but suffering, not so much. As a matter of fact, in a lot of people's minds, in my mind, Sometimes suffering is seen as something wrong with my faith. If I'm suffering, if I'm going through something wrong, why is it that I can't see more clearly what God is doing? The suffering is an illustration, is an evidence 
of something that is wrong, not something that is faithful. But that clearly is not Jesus' words here to the church of Smyrna. It's clearly not Jesus' words on suffering as a whole. He has an entirely different understanding of what it means for the believer to suffer. And it's well laid out here for us as he writes to the church of Smyrna. Now, uh, this letter, like the other seven letters that we're going to be looking at, follows a certain pattern. There's a structure in which you can go through, a format. It starts with who the letter is addressed to, and then the author, description of the author. It talks about the encouragement that is put forward, and then criticism, a warning, a command, and it ends in a promise. This follows the exact same structure as the other letters. And, of course, my point through this whole thing uh, is, are these instructions simply for the church of Smyrna 2,000 years ago, or does God intend for these instructions to be addressed to Hebron church as well? I clearly think that these are intended for us as well. To the angel of the church of Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was one of the popular cities uh, that were near Ephesus, located near Ephesus, um, that uh, would have been very prominent on the coast of Turkey, what is modern-day Turkey now today. A couple of key things about Smyrna that show up a little bit. The first is that it was the very first city in this area to profess obedience and, and respect and love for the emperor, for Rome. Long before Rome became this international empire, Smyrna many hundreds of miles away, nevertheless said, hey, we're going to ally ourselves with Rome. And so for centuries, uh, Smyrna, two centuries at this point, Smyrna has been located, has been locked firmly into the Roman column in, in terms of uh, their allegiance. Indeed, they went ahead and built a temple to the goddess Roma, uh, kind of personified Rome itself as a goddess, and then built a temple addressed to Rome. So one of the things to keep in mind about Smyrna is that they were very attached to Rome. They had a, 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 a deep devotion to Rome as a whole. Secondly, it was a very, very wealthy port. It was probably uh, one of the more wealthy cities in which we're going to be looking at. There was a beautiful port that was right there. It was a commerce center of commerce and trade. Uh, lots of riches, lots of wealth was located in Smyrna. If you couldn't make it in Smyrna, you couldn't make it anywhere, kind of a thing across the board. And then thirdly, the idea of Smyrna, what Smyrna is kind of set up there, not only as its devotion to Rome, but then also its poverty that is, or I'm sorry, the, the wealth that is there. But Smyrna, about 500 years earlier, had been destroyed by natural disasters and some invasion and those kind of things. Smyrna as a city had been completely wiped out. And yet, within about 200 years, Smyrna had rebuilt, had been rebuilt, and had resurrected from the ashes in which Smyrna had existed before, and now was this vibrant city that everybody was attracted to. So Smyrna itself had this history of being a wealthy city, being wiped out, and then resurrecting, coming back in, 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 uh, into uh, life as a city. And those three themes, devotion to Rome, the wealth of the city and this, this resurrection theme are going to be prominent here as Jesus addresses the church of Smyrna. Now Jesus identifies himself in verse 8 there as these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. 
once again, looking back into the description of Jesus that we find in chapter 1, uh, when John the Apostle turns and sees Jesus standing there, he identifies him as the first and the last. Here what we have is an argument again for the uh, comprehensive nature of Jesus. That Jesus is the beginning and the end. That there is nothing outside. This is a way in which John's trying to capture this picture. That there's nothing outside of the hands of our Lord. Nothing outside of God's control and his ability. He's the first and the last. Everything there, it belongs to, to our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the first and the last. He was one who died and who came to life. And so of all of the characteristics of our Lord to point out... He highlights here for us in this particular passage to this particular church, the church of Smyrna, he highlights this characteristic of being, uh, of, of dying and being raised to life again. And we're going to see how that has importance to us here in a few minutes. So after addressing the church of Smyrna and identifying himself, Jesus identifying himself, then what he does is he turns and provides some encouragement. As he does in all of his letters, he now says, hey, I know this about you. I have seen this about you. What does he say? I know your tribulation. He looks at the church and he says, I know your suffering. I know your affliction. I know your tribulation. The word tribulation here... Uh, is, is beyond just suffering, it's beyond just difficulties, it's beyond just a burden, it's a, it's a burden, uh, uh, the best way to understand uh, tribulation is, I see the burdens that are crushing you, burdens that crush you. Some of you know that a uh, method of torture in the past has always been crushing, uh, stacking rocks upon people until they are crushed. Um, and while the Greeks didn't necessarily practice this, it was practiced in the Roman era, and this is the word that they would use for that, that last stone that was added that would finally crush the person. That would be the tribulation, the stone that crushes. And here what we have is Jesus saying, I know your, now, and again, to hearken back to what we've seen before, when Jesus says, I know your tribulation, He's not saying I'm intellectually aware of your tribulation. Cl clearly he's saying that. But this is the one, remember, who walks among the lampstands. Early on in this letter has pointed out that Jesus' awareness of the church is not just an intellectual awareness from afar, but rather that he has immersed himself in the church. He has experienced the very things in which he writes here to the church of Smyrna. I know your tribulation. I know of that crushing weight that is upon you. Many of us think about the life in which we lead there where we carry burdens. And we know what that's like. All of us have some burden or another. Burden of school, burden of our families, burden of our jobs. This tribulation, though, is a burden that crushes. And Jesus says, I know of that burden that you carry. It's so important for us to hear this aspect of encouragement. This is encouragement from our Lord when he says to the church, I know your tribulation. So many of us have to remind ourselves when we're going through the crushing weight of our days 
we need to say to ourselves over again, we need to hear the Lord say over again, I know of this tribulation that you are going through. Jesus identifies four particular tribulations, four particular aspects of this tribulation. I know your tribulation, your poverty, though you are rich. The though you are rich is clearly his identifying, look, you are spiritually rich, but I know your poverty. The poverty here, uh, and we don't necessarily in English have a good word for this, but there's being poor, there's barely making it, and then there is not having enough. That's the poverty, that's the word for poverty that is used here. I know that you don't have enough. And in light of Smyrna, this incredibly wealthy town, this incredibly wealthy city, here the Christians are poor. Now, I think we can look at that through a different number of different ways. One is that the gospel has always had inroads within the within poor uh, communities within the lower stratas of life because it offers that great blessing of God's gift of eternal life to those who are struggling in this world. And there's always been a special association within the church with those who are economically and, uh, and spiritually beat up and poor in this world. But I think there's probably something more that's going on here. This is an indication that the suffering that the church is going through is a suffering from the outside. It is an exclusion from the business community of those who are Christians. If you align yourself with Christ, you will pay an economic cost. You will pay a burden for aligning yourself with Jesus Christ in Smyrna. And so, supposedly here, the community as a whole, which is so devoted to Rome, cannot abide by somebody who is devoted to anything else. And so consequently, they push these Christians outside of the economic community, and they are poor. To what extent do we experience that tribulation today? Is this a word for heaven or not? Now, it's clear that in Hebron community, we have people that span the economic boundaries that span the economic plane here. We have those who are well off. We have those who are absolutely not. But as a church, do we experience the kind of tribulation, the persecution of poverty? Are there those here that out of devotion to Christ have put themselves in such a situation publicly within the economic world within the business world around us, in such where they are reduced to a lower status of life. They don't get the advantages that they could have because they are committed to our Lord Jesus Christ. I think if the Lord's letter to Smyrna is also the Lord's letter to Hebron, it should be. That should mark us an awareness that what we hold to in the faith puts us outside of certain business practices and that we are going to maintain the faithfulness even at an economic cost. Secondly, he goes on there in that, in that verse, verse 9, to say that, uh, that your tribulation is your poverty, 
but also the slander of who's, who, they, who say they are Jews but are not in the synagogue of Satan. This is an indication of the fact that they are uh, opposed, as Christians were tremendously during that first century, by the Jewish nation, by the Jewish people, religion, because they saw Christianity as a perversion of, of Judaism. And so here, when Jesus says that they are Jews but are not, they claim to be Jews but are not, they claim to be God's people. They claim to be doing that which is right, and yet they are not. And what are they doing? What is the persecution? What is this crushing burden that the church is under? It is under that crushing burden of gossip and of slander. Now, in general, most of us don't think of gossip as being a really terrible sin compared to murder or sexual immorality or something like that. We don't necessarily think of gossip as a terrible sin. But that's usually thought by people who have not experienced, who have not been at the receiving end of gossip. To be slandered, to be crushed by the burden of people's malicious view of you. And this is what marks Smyrna that they were persecuted and the slander and the gossip. Proverbs has this great line that says that, that a gossip is like a choice morsel. It goes down into the inner parts. Uh, a little bit ago, I was at a dinner and somebody served me uh, a kind of meat, a uh, kind of a, uh, I don't know what it was. What was it? Filet mignon. It was filet mignon. I, I, I don't even know what it is, so I don't know what. But man alive, it just went down to the innermost parts. It was the choicest morsel. It was just outstanding. And you know that gossip is like that. When you hear gossip, it just goes down into the inner parts. And you can't get rid of it. That's what Smyrna is suffering under the slander and the gossip of other people. Does Hebron Church experience that kind of gossip about it, slander about it? Then the passage goes on to talk about the, the behold, the devil is going to throw some into prison so that you may be tested. Now remember that uh, when the Satan does something against us, he desires for that to work towards our neg to, uh, against our belief. He wants us, it's a temptation that we would fall away from faith. And yet God can use that very same temptation and strengthen us in our faith. And so this is a test from the Lord so that it will happen over 10 days. That is a period of completion. I don't think it literally means you know, a week and a half, but rather you've got a, a, a period of 10 days of total completion of the temptation here. But they will be thrown into prison. And, and again, remembering what prison was like back in the day was a scary proposition. It was so much hor hor more horrifying than what we picture today. And then, if not that, if you look down at the end of chapter, uh, verse 10, be faithful unto death. And so ultimately, the persecution that is facing Smyrna is a persecution that would cost them their lives, the believers their lives. Does Hebron suffer under that kind of persecution? I think most of us would rejoice, as well we should, 
that we live in a time and in a place where it is very unlikely that our faith would ever cost us our lives or that our faith would ever cost us an imprisonment or something like that. And so I think we can rejoice that that's not the case, that that's unlikely for us to be the the case for us. Now, I know that there are many of us that have some kind of semi-romantic notion that it would be wonderful if I was actually persecuted for my faith, and that would be great. And yet, I think we have to listen more carefully to the words of our Lord when he speaks about suffering. Look now, if this is the encouragement that God knows of the tribulation of the church of Smyrna, look at his criticism in chapter, in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. And the Lord's words here are not possibilities. That's the key thing that I want you to hear here. The Lord's words here are not about possibilities. They are about the realities that affect all Christians. See, many of us think that our faith is such that if I have to suffer for my faith, I'm able to do it. If my faith leads me to suffering, well, then I guess I will understand that and I'll embrace that or whatever. We, we recognize that faith, that, that suffering might be a part of our Christian faith. That's not the way the scriptures speak of it. The scriptures speak of our suffering very differently. Listen to some of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. The Lord says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, blessed are you when these things happen, not if they happen, but the expectation that they will happen. In Luke 6, woe to you when people speak well of you, for that's how the false prophets were treated. There's the expectation that if you are faithful, the Lord will bring us into situations where people do not speak well of us. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. That's not much of an if. That's an expectation that it will happen. Certainly that becomes very clear here in the next line, John 15, where Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they persecuted me, we know they persecuted him. Then the implication here is that they will persecute you also. In this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Notice how Paul says that to to Timothy. There's not a possibility here. There is the certainty of suffering, of persecution. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, Peter writes, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Most of us think of suffering as something that might come to us as Christians. The letter to Smyrna and the follow-up verses that we looked at Jesus makes clear that suffering is an indispensable mark of the Christian. 
And not suffering because we get sick with COVID, not suffering because we do something bad and wicked, not suffering because we're living in a broken world, but suffering because of the faith. Now, does that mark Hebron Church? And if it doesn't, why not? Does that mark your life as a Christian? And if it doesn't, why not? Is it possible that if we compromise less with the world, we would suffer more? Is it possible that if you compromise less with the world, that you would suffer more? Jesus writes in the end of verse 10, he shifts into his warning and his counsel. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, when we think of crown, I don't want you to think of royal crown, something that you put on your head that marks you out of royalty. I want you to think of that wreath that they put around the heads of those who successfully completed the trials. They were the athletes, they ran the race, etc. And so you put a garland, a wreath around the head that marks you out as the victor. What marks you out as a victor over the persecution, the crushing weight of being faithful to Jesus Christ in a world that rejects him? We know the world rejects Christ. And if we are faithful, it is unimaginable that we will not suffer with him. So what marks us out as those who are suffering faithfully for the Lord? It is that crown of life. It is that identifying mark that you, yes, have the life of Jesus Christ within you. And it's not simply the life of Jesus Christ. The command is echoed in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we have ears and hear what he says to this church, that we would be like Smyrna, faithful in suffering. And then the promise. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And what is the second death? The second death here is simply that imagery of the final judgment. Those who conquer will not suffer the second death, ultimate alienation, separation from our Lord. Why? This goes back to the very beginning. How does Jesus identify himself in this letter? He is the first and the last. He is the eternal one. And because he is the eternal one, he can give to us what he has, eternal life. And because he is the one who died for our sins, and he is the one who now lives, he can give to us the very thing that he has, which is the gift of life. For those who will conquer, they will not be hurt by the second death. Persecution is not supposed to be a possibility for the Christian. It is baked into the very life we live. Because we live in a world that has rejected 
the most important thing in our lives, Jesus Christ himself. But the promise of that is eternal life.